Welcome to an episode of the Tiffo Mahapi Show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. I believe that opening businesses and, and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment at I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. We thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. I think we live in interesting times. I think since the beginning of 2020, nobody could have predicted <laughs> that we'd be, we'd be living in a time like this. And more so for, for companies and smaller companies or new companies. Uh, some are calling it a black swan event. I don't know. I mean, some are calling it just an unexpected event. But what I do know is that it's taken its toll on not just life as we know it, but on digital technology startups as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Alex? You know, it's such an interesting question. Fascinating time for the economy, for businesses, and certainly for book launches as well. I think that one of the most powerful changes that will come out of this will be a shift in how we think about startups and their mission and what it takes to succeed. If you think about the rule book or the playbook to build startups up until this moment or up until a few months ago, uh -huh. it was really ruled by this notion of growth and growth at all costs and books like Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman and Chris Yeh, which talk about how you build a startup and it has to be you know, growing as fast as you can. And it's okay if unit economics don't work and it's okay if burn is massive because the prize is getting to scale and having monopoly. And I think what we're seeing is that works in a very particular context and a very specific time when there's a lot of capital and when things are going really well and when the economy is stable and essentially things are perfect. But in almost every other situation, a more moderated and balanced approach is required. In the book, I talk about this concept of the camel, which is a coin I termed yes. around the idea of building a startup with sustainability and resilience built into the business model much earlier. And obviously, scale and growth matter a ton for every startup, but it's balanced with doing that. And that's something that startups outside the Valley have had to do for eons. But I think what's really powerful in the context yeah. of Corona, we'll see, we'll see startups everywhere think about being a camel as, as really the de facto strategy. I was about to say, I mean, outside of San Francisco, where you are based, I think, especially in Africa, we used to sort of building companies or startups with limited resources and having to figure out a way to grow them using those limited resources. So the concept quite resonates. But before we get to that, I think just a quick intro on who Alex Lazaro is and particularly why I have you on the show and your experience as a venture capitalist. Absolutely. I've always had one foot living in the valley and the other investing around the world. By day, I'm a venture capitalist. I work for a fund called Cathay Innovation. Cathay is the name of China and Marco Pose. So this idea of East meets West. Yeah. We're a globally focused fund, 500 million euro, a third invested in Asia, a third Europe, a third North America. And we also have in partnership with Africa Invest, a Pan-Africa venture fund as well. I've been there for about two years. And before that, I was at Omidyar Network, investing in uh, fintech and energy access companies across the world, principally in emerging markets, including across the continent in Africa. And outside of work, 
I've been teaching a MBA class on emerging market entrepreneurship with the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in, in Monterey. And many of my students end up moving back to emerging markets or all over the world and just build businesses. And, and just to introduce the reason I wrote the book, um, you know, I, I, I was getting really frustrated that I kept assigning them a lot of the Silicon Valley centric approaches. And, and to your point, um, not all of it resonated with what I was seeing on the ground working in emerging markets. And, and that was the reason I, I, I did the third thing I'm working on, which is, which is the book on the side. It's all good and well to say that we must, uh, as you say in the book, which I quickly got to read or had to, although I didn't complete it over the past couple of days before this interview, it's all good and well to say we should build businesses like camels without resources. But when we're talking about especially digital tech startups, skills come into play. I mean, how, how do you go about, without giving much away what's in the book, but how, how do you suggest to listeners they go about one I mean, skills are not evenly distributed across the world. But how do we go about starting with, with a team? Because, again, the foundation of any digital tech startup is the skills and the team that you have. I think you bring up such a critical point. At the end of the day, startups really combine three critical inputs. One is a inspiration business model idea. Two is a team to execute it. And three is some amount of capital to make it work. And the team is, ironically, there, there was a study by RippleWorks which uh, is a foundation that helps startups in emerging markets. And uh, they interviewed a number of founders. And, you know, obviously, unsurprisingly, capital and team were pain points that founders really uh, had to contend with. The thing that is surprising is that team was the only one that got worse over time. <laughs> you know, as the startups scaled, it was easier for them to get capital. They had a business model and things were working, but it was harder and harder for them to attract the right amount of folks. And here is- was that? You know, I think it's a couple of reasons. One is with a team at the beginning, you can leverage your own network and your own community. But over time, you have to, A, you expire, you use up your own immediate network and the immediate network of your community. And so you have to expand beyond that at the same time that you also need to hire a lot more people. And at the same time where, as you mentioned, the, the market size problem, I, I believe that talent is distributed completely evenly. I think opportunity is not. And one of the big challenges in many emerging ecosystems is that there isn't the same depth of trained startup human capital. And so as Correct. a result, I think that startup founders think very carefully about how to build their pipeline of candidates, recruit and onboard, retain, and ultimately grow that talent. The, the playbook in the Valley, right, is this idea of hiring only eight players and Employee churn is built into the model, right? It's okay you have 15 months tenure because you can find someone else in this really seemingly endless pool of tech talent. But in many ecosystems, that's that's just neither possible nor practical. And so you have to think a little bit more carefully. And so I think entrepreneurs are rethinking the model on the top of the pipeline. And I'll give you one or two examples there. Are rethinking the model on growing and retaining as well. And, and maybe inspiring ourselves of models in Africa one company I've really admired is Hotels.ng in Nigeria. Yeah, that's Mark Essien, right? Mark Essien, exactly. And what he's done, building an internship, essentially as a pipeline development tool. So anyone yeah. can apply. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of the program? 
Yeah, we've been following it since early days when they started. It was first limited uh, to an in-person uh, internship in Lagos. And as the years went by, they've started doing sort of a virtual internship as well on the internet and inviting anybody around Nigeria. Exactly. And that's the thing that I think is interesting is with the virtual internship, they basically say anyone can apply no matter where you are and all the problems are sent over Slack so they can have a really wide volume of candidates that come in and week after week the ones that are able to do the problem successfully stay in the internship and ultimately the best are left standing and those are the folks that get hired and what i think is powerful is the candidates that they find are not you know necessarily the candidate that's worked at a startup next door in lagos it's often candidates from all across the country that they would not necessarily have found before they are getting greater gender diversity and things like that and so tools like that to think what are the ways that I can increase the size of my funnel, yep. but also efficiently figure out not who interviews well, but who does a really, really good job, um, I think becomes really powerful. Yeah. So that's awesome that you've been tracking them already. So it means, I mean, based on what you're saying and the example you're using, so it means that without looking at the valley as a model for how to get teams, we need to think of sort of innovative ways that are that are so targeted at our own markets. I think it's tough if you're operating in markets where there's a pretty big informal economy, for instance. And uh, is and then as a consequence, it becomes much harder to compare experience on a resume and do traditional hiring like, hey, where did you work? What was your experience? Um, no, if, that doesn't apply. Exactly. And so you have to you have to think about what are the ways you can adapt and test and uh, evaluate people throughout the model. And and obviously, the hotel's internship works really well for engineering, right? Because there's a very yeah. tactical approach to it, right? You know is this engineering problem solved correctly or incorrectly? And, and that's all and, that matters. And that's all that matters. I think it's harder, obviously, if you're you know, hiring someone in marketing or in something where the answer is not black or white, where it's a little bit more of an art than a science. And here again, I think, I think we're seeing some entrepreneurs do some interesting things. I interviewed uh, the founders of Shortlist, which works actually both in East Africa and also in Asia. And uh, they've created a bunch of modules to test people on their ability to work and, and and their style of work, et cetera, to then recommend them and fit them into roles. And, uh, and it's just kind of part of recruiting assessment, part of assessment tool, et cetera, but kind of of the same ethos of what Hotels.ng did with their internship. I think having covered the team perspective in terms of raising, which is quite uh, one of the fundamentals, one of the things that I've quite observed over the years and since I've come to know how Silicon Valley startups work is, the concept of, I think you touched on it when we started, the concept of growth at all costs and unlimited funding that, that fuels that. But as as we enter this uncertainty or as we've entered this uncertain period with the coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19, I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you'll have better experience, I don't think there'll be a sort of blank checks or unlimited funding for startups, not just in the Valley, but globally to just grow at all costs. I think sustainability and pro not profit per se, but proving a, a, a business model early on will become important. Is that, is, am I right or is, 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 am I totally off the mark? So two thoughts. One is in most ecosystems around the world, I think it's already been the case that sustainability and resiliency were critical to success and really core to the game plan. I think that what is happening is that within the pockets where capital 
has been abundant and it was much easier to fundraise, I think there's going to be a bigger shift towards that as well. And I, I think Corona is going to be and is being a catalyst on that for sure. I think the cracks are much older, right? We, we saw some of the failed IPOs happen in the yes. Valley on, mar- on businesses that had high burn and low gross margins and were doing a lot of user subsidization. And so the cracks were already there. I think Corona in some ways is the, is the nail in the coffin in some ways um, to the model, but it really catalyzes, catalyzes that change forward. And, uh, and so absolutely, I, I believe that we're going to see a big shift towards sustainability and resilience in startups and in business models throughout. It obviously doesn't mean that companies are going to be profitable the whole way, right? Like you still need to true, true. invest in growth. And, and I still believe that venture capital is a powerful tool to support it. You know, caveat, <laughs> I'm a venture capitalist. But, true. but, but, but I, I think we're going to see a return back to balanced growth, to a reversion of the mean, if you will. And probably even a little bit farther than that, right? As, as companies go through what will be a really tough time and, and will really cut costs and try to be really thoughtful about spend, et cetera, to be able to wade through it because – uh, it's, it's it's obviously an incredibly, incredibly challenging time. It is. And that's where the concept uh, that you also touched on earlier on about a, building a camel. So I've heard different uh, uh, versions of, of this or analogies of startups. So in the <laughs> Valley, obviously, you have a, what's known as a unicorn and everybody talks about that, a fast growth, billion dollar startup. On the continent, I've heard people talk about building sort of gazelles that's uh, yep. like fast uh, profit, quickly profitable, fast growth, but they're quickly profitable. They're not as big, etc. What's a camel? It, I, I think I get the concept in terms of uh, camel being able to last long distances, etc. But can you just explain to people who might not be familiar with that? And by the way, there's a true menagerie of, of startup animals. In Silicon Valley, there's a zebra. Well, is it? I didn't talk know. About the rhino. <laughs> so yeah. There's a lot more. But, but I, I think that ultimately a lot of these have certain elements in common, right? And this isn't, this is really kind of a reaction around and against the concept of, of the unicorn. So the unicorn first, what is it? On the one hand, you'd say it's a numerical value. Startups yeah. are worth over a billion dollars. I believe it's also a philosophy where the number is also the objective and the objective is growth at all costs. And it's this approach and it's philosophy. So the camel in many ways is the opposite of that. It is, it is an opposite philosophy and it's rooted in a real animal. First of all, it isn't a, uh, it isn't made up. It exists. It survives in the harshest environments of the world exists in many geographies around the world. And a couple elements about it. One, it's incredibly fast Two, it can drink, uh, water when it's available faster than anything, but it also survive in the desert uh, for a long time when, when conditions are less good. And that's ultimately what it's about. It's one is it's building a sustainable business from the get-go that has a couple elements to it. One is it isn't about subsidization of products. It's about having fair pricing from the get-go and getting customers to value it. Um, and in that way, they share some elements with, with the concept of gazelles and things like that. Two is managing costs. It isn't about the really, really deep burn. It's about investing, but raising capital for specific purposes along the growth story. Three is about having a long-term view, right? Building a camel, building a successful startup in more emerging ecosystems is not something that's three, four years and done, right? It'll take a long time, brick by brick building. You can still get tremendous amounts of growth, but but you're doing it from this footing of, of sustainability and resilience. And, and I think those are some of the key elements to building that that type of business. But obviously with that comes like 
trying to build new business models or venture models, as you would call them, because you're building for the long term for sustainability and you and you obviously don't have an unlimited or a relatively longer runway. So what different sort of business models are you looking at when building a camel? And also I'm putting this in context of what we're seeing now currently during this time is uh, models like the gig economy, obviously not by design what being decimated or being put on hold because of the of the virus, but it presents an opportunity to explore other different models. So building when you're building a camel, I mean what are the same models still applicable or are we looking at different business models? So I actually believe that building a camel is more of a philosophy than it is a style of business. And I think that okay. any type of business can take that philosophy. The dynamics yep. of an industry will be such that some, you know, if you're building a hardware business or a biotech or something like that, right? Like there will be more upfront investment. It'll be harder to build revenue. And if you're building something that, you know, you can generate revenues right away and has a low kind of capex investment required, right? The dynamics of those are different, but the philosophy and and the mindset that you approach building it can be the same. And, and so th- that I think is important. To your point on, on the gig economy, just to illustrate that, take the example of Grubhub which is a you know on-demand delivery, restaurant delivery. It started in Chicago in the Midwest. It was really successful, raised less than $100 million of pure venture money, and today is a multi-billion dollar business. I interviewed the, the co-founder, Mike Evans, and he talked a lot about every single round that they raised capital, they were sustainable or could get to it very quickly. And they mm-hmm. raise the capital for very specific purposes, expand to another city or expand to a couple other cities, do a little acquisition, whatever. And actually, ironically, only now when they're competing against some of the Silicon Valley style startups, are they having to shift towards subsidization to try to retain their users and things like that. But that's an example of a business that is in, you know, in the gig economy that's been able to be very sustainable throughout their growth. And, and so I, I, I really don't believe that it's something that is unique to the business model. I think it's much more a philosophy that can be applied anywhere. Um, and it's this philosophy of t- saying, you know, a startup will have a value of depth, right? And that's natural, right? Like there's a, a, there's a curve where you're spending more money than you're making because you're, you're investing towards growth in the future. And that, that'll be normal. But I think the philosophy is saying, let's try to make sure that curve isn't as deep as it could be. Right. It's like bringing it up. I think that some businesses have what I call ditches of death instead of a big valley. And, and the What's that? it's a good example of it. Right. It's it's you know, they'll, they'll they'll grow for a period and they'll get back to sustainability. They get to a point where where they break even. And maybe that's when they yeah. go up for a fundraise. And then when they raise capital, they'll invest in growth and accelerate again. And I see that a lot time and time again in emerging markets where startup founders will build a business. They'll grow, grow, grow. They'll get to a point where they're, they realize they're going to need to raise capital. They slow growth a little bit, perhaps, or they get cash to come back in. They get to a point where they control their destiny. And that's when they raise because capital raise processes take a long time in, in more emerging ecosystems. They do it from position strength. So that, that's just one way that people have done it. That's, I'm not advocating necessarily that, that strategy. I think it's obviously very context specific on, on whether or not you do the, the ditches model, but, but, but I yeah. think it's possible. I mean, you just mentioned something that's quite interesting and speaking to a few people and startups about it is raising money in this climate. I mean, just quickly, your thoughts about that. Is it something that uh, you can say to startups is going to be almost impossible? 
And if so, for how long will we expect this climate to be around? Or how should they think about raising money during this period? I'm not sure I have a really satisfying answer for you because because the answer will end up being so context specific and and really depend on the industry. I believe yep. that great companies will continue to get funded. We're obviously at a moment in a in a very specific window that I hope, you know, we're I hope this window will be very short where there's a ton of uncertainty and people are working from home and we don't know what's going to happen. I hope we get to a point where we come out of this and things maybe are not fully back to normal. We're getting back to normal and, and, and the pace of investment will be. So I, I think there's a, there's a moment right now where there's just a lot of uncertainty, but I, I think that, you know, there's more venture capital dollars out there than ever before. Many more VCs that are looking to emerging markets. So I think, you know, the macro trend is, is there. Yeah, great businesses. So I, I continue to be really optimistic. I do think that it is smart to have to have the reserves because it'll take a while potentially for things to get back to normal and and to get back to the kind of the macro curve that that we're all really excited about. Or at least that I'm that I'm really excited about. On that note, I mean, how does how does a camel or a startup that thinks like a camel or use <laughs> a camel philosophy navigate these uncertain times? I mean. I think there's a it's it's a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, you can't predict what's going to happen even next week. So, how does using that philosophy? How do how, how does a startup navigate this? Yeah. What decision What decision models do they use? What what thinking models, or if they there are any, do they use? Yeah, and and I think it's tough switching from not being a camel to a camel philosophy overnight, right? And so, I think a startup founder that has already been building a camel for some time would already have built a business model with real revenues, not subsidizing user acquisition, right? Like really building a sustainable revenue path. And at the same time, you know, kept burn on the other side, pretty manageable. And so you get into a position where you have a crisis, you know, maybe the revenue line starts going down or not growing quite as fast, but you haven't scaled the cost base so much that you're in trouble. And so a camel is actually reasonably well positioned of understanding those levers to action and uh, and being ready to to fight against it. And, and and let's be honest, right? Like obviously the Corona crisis is a incredible global challenge. But yeah. I also believe that many startup founders in emerging markets have faced similar acute, much more local challenges, right? If you think of the currency depreciations that some countries can face radically overnight. Um, in the book, I talk about uh, a startup called Zona, which operates in a couple of countries, but you know, the core market was in Zambia and talked about the time where the Zambian Quacha went down 70% overnight and what it took to, to figure that out. You know, obviously these macro challenges are not something that are, is not something that, that no one's ever seen before. It just, this is one of the first times we've seen it in a macro, macro global way. But, but I actually believe that emerging market entrepreneurs are probably the best prepared to weather the storm because they've just been built to, to fight some of this and, and are accustomed to it. The other thing, which is what a bit think? of a conundrum, what do I think in terms yeah. of, uh, I think from, from our side, as I mentioned earlier, we've sort of been used over time with, uh, to building companies with less resources than other startups around the world, especially definitely startups in the Valley. So we've got some sort of uh, grit or some resiliency mm. built in us in a way. So we can navigate it a little bit better. Or we, as you say, we've experienced the, uh, conditions that are extremely uncertain and extremely difficult and i'm speaking generally here i think we we've got that philosophy of mental toughness to try and navigate these times 
Yeah. But what makes it even more difficult is just the uncertainty as to what's coming around the corner, given that it's a global challenge. It's not just a, a challenge that's facing us in a specific region. So, but I think we've, we've, we've had the experience, generally speaking, as founders, as company founders mm-hmm. who've run startups of all sizes to navigate tough times. Yeah. We better, I would say mentally, we're slightly better positioned than most. I love your point on grit, and I totally agree with you. One of my favorite quotes in the book, I interviewed Ahmed Zaki, who's the founder of Bukalapak, which is a billion-dollar business in Indonesia. And he's, he referred to himself, just to add another animal to our collection, he said, you know, we're, we're a cockroach. And I'm paraphrasing him, but he basically, we can survive anything, including a nuclear blast. And, and that's really, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's really that, that mentality of grit, right? And just, we'll make it. We're going to survive. We're going we're gonna to build through it. And, and having done it, I, and I, I know so many emerging market founders that have gone through these moments, moments of truth, so inspired by how they made it through. I think the other point is, and that's also specific to our region, specific to Africa and most African countries, is balancing social impact or just impact with mm-hmm. building a profitable building a profitable business, it's a very tough balance. I mean, generally, you would find, I think, about 10 or 20 years ago that when you were talking technology or technology startups, you had two kinds mainly. You had uh, the enterprise side. So your Microsoft would be here across the continent, your Cisco's, et cetera. And then on the other end of the scale, you'd find sort of tech for good or tech for development, ICT for development. So your NGOs, et cetera, which were purely focused on social impact and not profit. But as the years have come along and the decades have come, you're now finding companies focusing on both social impact and trying to build for-profit companies. I mean, how, how, how easy is it to balance that? Or is it sort of a holy grail that's quite difficult to achieve in your opinion? Before we're talking about social impact, I think it's important to first realize what are the businesses that are getting built. Emerging market founders are actually by and large building a different type of business. I think that they are creators, not disruptors. In the Valley, we are obsessed with this notion of disruptors, right? The 22-year-old hooded warrior taking down an incumbent industry with a new attitude and a new approach and a new product. And yet that isn't what the reality is in, in emerging markets. There isn't industries to disrupt. More often than not, entrepreneurs are creators. They're creating an industry, yeah. offering a new product for the first time, be it a financial service or healthcare or education or energy or whatever it is. And so I think that's a really important backdrop to what is getting built in emerging markets and the fundamental difference. And then within that backdrop, I think you're absolutely right. I think that entrepreneurs are weaving social impact into the fabric, the operations, the culture of the business. And I think at the starting point, it's a really prime motivation for them, right? They're, they're doing this to create something. But actually, the way they build their business, they have built a business model, their success. So if you're Zola, for instance, or Mcopa or something like that, and you're selling an off-grid energy system, the more systems you sell, the more families you're actually helping and, and giving light for the first time ever, more often than not, and bringing someone that's been off-grid, uh, giving them a modern lighting solution. And so the social impact of the business is, is inherently tied. And even if you have kind of a little bit more of a B2B solution, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs still build social impact into the fabric of the operation. I'll give you one example, uh, actually an Indian business called Revigo. 
And what Ruvigo does, you know, their tagline is making logistics human. And they're solving a problem that is very, you know, exists in many emerging markets, which is just really inefficient logistics, trucking supply chain. And one of the problems that they identify is that the truckers have a really tough uh, experience, right? They're gone from their families a lot of the time. They might drive in one direction on the way home. Their truck is empty or whatever. They don't make that much money. It's, you know, they're, they're sleeping away from home and away from the families for long. And so they wanted to reinvent the driver's experience. And so the way they did it is the driver drives in one direction, maximum 24 hours, and then might give the load to someone else and take another load the other direction. And so they created this daisy chain where they can transport loads uh, across the continent, but really focused around the driver experience and the metrics that they report to the board are around, you know, number of nights the driver's been away from home and number of loads directions and things like that. Ultimately, they keep their drivers based on the driver experience that they can offer. And so the success of their drivers is actually directly linked to the operational success and longevity of the business. And so I think that's really what's powerful is, is when you tie those two things together. And I call them MMAs, multi-mission athletes. Which yeah, yeah. Is in the this book, idea of using multiple tools. Yeah, I think I like that human touch to it because it does have a profit impact. If that drivers are tired or drivers are, it are making mistakes or inexperienced, it does affect your bottom line anyway. Absolutely, and particularly over the long term, right? In the short term, you yeah. might be tempted to say, "Well, you know, it doesn't matter. We'll just get an extra ride in, or just this one time." But over the long term, building consistency towards this, you're able to build a much more successful business. And so that's that's really core and critical. Um, and, and by the way, if you, if you think about it, it is so opposite to what we've seen in the Valley, right? Like you think of uh, Google and they have a motto, don't be evil. Well, yes. you know, I think that's really scary to me. If you have to tell me don't be evil is your motto, like what, what, what could you do? Well, that's the, and, that's the basic human thing you should do. You should not be evil. <laughs> yeah, but, but my but my point simply is that the fact that they have to say it because in their in their interest, you might say is to you know they have they have all this data, they can do all these things, um, and they have they they've actually taken a really customer focused view on saying hey we want to we want to do the right thing, but um, they have this conflict between the bottom line in that way and the social impact they have. Um, a lot of businesses have done that through mottos or missions to try to manage it. Others have done it by, you know, you think of a give one, buy one, buy one, give one type model. Um, yeah. But essentially when times are tough and when you get in a situation like Corona or otherwise, having social impact directly tied to the operations of the business is really the, the best way to ensure that you stay aligned with your mission, right? Because yeah. you can't deviate, right? You could turn off the buy one, give one. Uh, and just say, hey, just buy one, and we won't give one, um, and that'll improve margins, and then and then you've lost the social impact. But if it's tied to the operations, then you know you're out of luck, right? And so you just have to keep building and keep having impact. And so I I, I think that's one of the fundamental ways that emerging market entrepreneurs, that creators, can weave impact is is really by tying those two together. And I think it, it's it's an important point you make. It's per, perhaps coronavirus is uh, is a catalyst for this for for getting people to build businesses that have more social impact because we are realizing that without humans, without us being healthy, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. As long as there's no customers, people are ill, it, it, your business is useless. Yeah, yeah. So the, the next point, I mean, as, as we slowly try to wrap up now, 
is do you have any examples of uh, sort of camel founders or founders who think like camels and startups that operate like camels from around the world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I gave a little bit of example of Grubhub, which I think is a great, great example sure. of one of one that is. You know, and the reason I mentioned that one is it's so antithetical to to what we see everywhere around the world. And yet it is a business model that we're familiar and we normally associate with a growth at all cost methodology. But think of any founder that is building a startup that has not had access to capital the whole way through and that has just been slogging and but building with sustainability and resilience and surviving. And and ultimately they're they're building camels uh, around the world. So um I, I I think it's I think it's such a widespread widespread approach and philosophy that's used at different degrees. And, 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 and actually, maybe one corollary around it. As you think about what Grubhub means and how you, how you might apply that lesson to, to other markets, I think that the, the world is, you know, obviously, like Chicago is totally different than, than Johannesburg. In the book, I defy the frontier, and I think there's kind of two broad axes to it. One is mm-hmm. uh, how developed the, the country is from an economic perspective. So there are countries that are more or less developed. And then two is how developed the startup ecosystem is. There are uh, cities that have more developed or less developed startup ecosystems. And so you might say Silicon Valley is top right, right? It operates in a in a developed country and has a developed startup ecosystem. Maybe Tel Aviv or New York is up there too. And then you say maybe like bottom left, you might have some much more emerging markets with very nascent startup scenes. And so, you know, maybe you'd put Kinshasa in or something like that there. Yeah. And then kind of you'd say, well, maybe Chicago is a developed market and kind of an, a, a more emerging startup ecosystem. And so it'd be in one of the other quadrants. And then you'd say, well, actually, maybe Lagos, which has a really thriving startup ecosystem, but in a more emerging market might be in the other quadrant. And so obviously, there's so much difference between all four of those buckets. And yet, I actually think there's still a lot of lessons that founders in emerging markets and emerging ecosystem, kind of the other three, can share with each other because they're often facing some of the similar challenges. One of the key questions and something that fascinates me, and it's not completely related to the book, but just on startups and ecosystems, et cetera, and that different, is the emergence over the past few decades, over the past four decades, to be specific, mm-hmm. of uh, from a technology point of view of the Shenzhen ecosystem, which speaking and looking at it and looks to be more focused on building smaller, not unicorns, not big companies, but smaller companies in numerous amounts, but more sustainable. I mean, what, what, what's your quick comment on that in terms of the Shenzhen? Does it fit in within that, um, within that paradigm of thinking of saying this is a camel that will last long, or where does it fit in, or how do you see it in, in comparison to Silicon Valley? You know, I'm, I'm definitely no expert on the Shenzhen yeah. ecosystem. Uh, so I'm probably a little bit not the right, not, not not best place to it. But to your point around what causes an ecosystem to scale and at what point we start seeing that that momentum going, one of the things that I noticed in the research, and, and this is something that we saw in China, and it's something sure. that we're seeing all over the world, is when you get a little bit of a critical mass of successful companies. So you, know, you get one successful company, maybe it gets an exit or something like that. You know, that, that gives kind of this one one entrepreneur role model, maybe there's a couple of people at the company that have made a little bit of money and are angel investors, but doesn't just yeah. move, it doesn't really move the needle. But then a couple of years later, maybe there's another, a couple of years later, there's an inflection point in a lot of markets. And uh, when you map uh-huh. it, it's at about five or seven scaled companies. And I, I used I used 
a billion dollars uh, as the metric, but you might say, oh, the, the, the number you measure is, is a little different, like 500 or whatever. But I, at yeah. some point where you get a critical mass of exits, and I think ultimately what you see is that founders, if you have just one, it's like, oh, well, that's an ex- exception. But if you have five or six, you're like, well, I could be that person, right? Like, look at all these people. And then you have a network of engineers that have worked at a bunch of these companies or maybe have like left one to go work at another and have made a little bit of money, have a network of folks, et cetera, that are all starting to do angel investing, but also going off to raise their next company because they they worked with the founder before and, and the founder's going to back them or whatever. So you start seeing kind of both this cultural shift in the ecosystem, but also a human capital shift. There's a generation of folks that have done it and a capital shift where now there's a little bit of that super early stage capital to, to fund startups. And with those three together, you start seeing things get get unlocked. And that's what I think is really exciting. You, you've summed it up quite perfectly. And it does apply in a way from my observation and interactions with Shenzhen as well. I think that in the, the second and third order effects of successful startups, although the number is debatable of at what point do they have to, does the inflection point come, does have an impact in terms of a growth of an ecosystem. I think you're seeing that, uh, and you can correct me also if I'm wrong, in, in, in Lagos, you're seeing that in various ecosystems across the continent where they reached a certain level of exits or scale, and those founders and those engineers are starting to invest and start other projects. I think that's totally right on. And I, you know, when, when I have conversations with eco- ecosystem builders on, on strategy and, and what to do, one of the things I counsel them, you know, it's often it's often the instinct to say, well, we need more startups at the bottom of the pipeline, like early stage ideas. And I say that's totally right, right? You need you need yeah. this innovation, but also, and I think it's important not to lose sight about helping scaling companies because they're also facing challenges, right, around the human capital front. It takes more capital, financial capital too, and getting access to it, et cetera. And so, I think a measure of success for an ecosystem and unlock it is also making sure that the breakouts stay breakouts and actually end up breaking out and ultimately ultimately succeed cuz I think that's required to then get that get that perpetual wheel in motion a little bit and, and ensure the next generation comes after. Alex, I think this was quite an insightful call and thanks for your time for sharing your thoughts. Thank you for listening to the Tifomohapi show which is broadcast by iAfrican Radio. To be notified of future episodes of this podcast and any other shows from iAfrican Radio, please visit radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com and subscribe. You can catch future episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at tefomohapi, which is T-E-F-O. M-O-H-A-P-I. And also don't forget to follow iAfrican2 on Twitter at I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. Hot.